0: good morning baseball fans and welcome to episode number 96 of the morning round trip podcast here on october 13th 2020 the alcs is in action the nlcs is in action and we'll get to all of that my name is drew frank i'm joined by my co-host liam Cruthers. Hello and good morning. And unfortunately, before we get to the baseball, there's been another inner circle Hall of Famer who passed away as Joe Morgan died at age 77 earlier this week. Very brutal blow. A guy that broke all sorts of barriers and pioneered in many different industries around the baseball world. His former teammate, Johnny Bench, one of the members alongside Morgan on that big red machine, said, "Joe Morgan was quite simply the best baseball player I ever played against or saw." That praise, of course, couldn't come from much better a player than Johnny Bench. Joe Morgan, known on the field to many as the greatest second baseman of all time, five-tool player, one back-to-back MVPs, 10-time All-Star, won five gold gloves, finished with over 100 career baseball reference war, and was inducted into 1990s Hall of Fame class. Mentioned, back-to-back MVP in 1975 and 1976. Cincinnati would go on to win the World Series in both of those years. And Joe Morgan, one of only three players with 200 home runs, 500 steals, and 1,500 walks. The other two, Barry Bonds and Ricky Henderson. Not so bad company there. But to many people, Joe Morgan will be known and remembered mostly as a commentator. Broadcast all across the nation for over two decades as part of ESPN's Sunday Night Baseball team, Joe Morgan went on after being a baseball player to continue to impact the game from the broadcast
1: booth. I hearken back to a memory that I have as a seven year old child firing up MLB 2K6 on my PlayStation 2, and I'm greeted by the commentary team of John Miller and Joe Morgan. As a kid who grew up around not only sports but sports video games, Joe Morgan has a special place in my heart because he's the first color commentator that I was ever really familiar with, and I thought that he was tremendous not only as a commentator in the game but as a playable character in the game as well, and I remember. Uh, playing with the National League greats and the iconic chicken wing batting stance while uh, he talked about the way that he was playing the game on the field from the commentary booth. I thought it was one of the coolest things uh, about really my childhood around video games, around sports, around baseball in general. This one, like I said, a little bit deeper for me. Joe Morgan will be missed, no doubt.
0: And Dusty Baker, who we saw yesterday, spoke about how he was an inspiration to African-American players and an inspiration to undersized players because, of course, remembered for his chicken wing stance and confidence he brought to the field. But at a 5'7 frame, he overcame a lot of critique that he was undersized, not ready, not able to compete. And a guy like Dusty Baker even referenced Jose Altuve on his team. Joe Morgan went a long way for making a path for guys like Altuve to find a spot. And as we talked about his broadcast partner, John Miller, he said, Joe is rightfully remembered as a great player and Hall of Famer, and in my opinion, is the greatest second baseman there ever was. But his pioneering efforts are not always as appreciated. He was the first black or African-American baseball analyst in primetime on national television, and he did that for 21 seasons. He was the pioneering trailblazer among commentators. He was also someone whose opinion the commissioner valued and that he sought counsel from. Joe had an influence over the game way beyond what we all saw. So at 77 years, rest in peace, Joe Morgan. Now, quickly, there is all sorts of other news that we've got to cover from yesterday before we can even get into the games. The White Sox, they officially let go of manager Ricky Renteria, of saw this one coming. They also part ways with pitching coach Don Cooper. Aside from the more experienced pitchers and some of the bullpen, they hadn't quite had the development with guys like Carlos Rodon that they might have hoped for, or Ronaldo Lopez. So they'll move to 2021 with both a new manager and a new pitching coach.
1: And with some young arms on the way in the form of Michael Kopech and Dylan Cease, guy who has broken into the big league team but is still yet to be groomed into a major league player with the management that Ricky Renteria showcased in the postseason, uh, I think this was pretty obvious. It sort of felt like he was maybe out of his depth and obviously with the losing seasons that he had racked up before this year's shortened season, I feel like this move really was coming for a while. And the A's also
0: making a change. In their front office, they're going to be parting ways with Billy Bean. He wasn't laid off as Ricky Renneria may have kind of been pushed out the door. Billy Bean decides to part ways with the A's because he's moving beyond the scope of baseball. He's looking to pursue business opportunities with Boston's Fenway Sports Group looking to perhaps work more with their European football presence as they own Liverpool and, and potentially going to look more in that scope. But Billy Bean set to leave the A's front office. That is a major change for a team that has been mostly defined by him and his premise of Moneyball. So change is coming to Oakland. And tell me fam, this is a different type of news story. He was stabbed Sunday night in San Diego. We just found out about it yesterday. Reportedly, he was trying to get two arguing strangers away from where he had parked his car and ended up getting caught up in it and stabbed in the back. He said in a statement by the team, Well, it was very traumatic and eye-opening experience for me. I'm on the road to recovery, and I know I'll be back to my off-season training routine in no time. Reportedly, it pierced through three layers of his skin, but didn't make contact with any organs, and he will be okay, but scary situation there, and that will set back his rehab time a little bit, and finally, the game we're about to get into, the NLCS, we saw fans in the ballpark for the first time, and AP is reporting that about 75% of fans were compliant with the requirement to wear masks, except when, quote, actively eating or drinking. 75% of 10,000 people is might seem like a lot, but 25% of 10,000 people also seems like a fair amount.
1: Yeah, it's not exactly a small number regardless of uh, what the numbers we're talking about are. Especially when you consider the fact that the MLB has had less than a 0.1% positive rate for its coronavirus testing. Um, personally, I did see some fans without the masks on when they went to field foul balls or when they were interacting with each other. And that's a little disheartening because obviously the MLB has worked so hard to try to maintain the season on the pace that it's on. An outbreak right now would set things back massively, but obviously you hope that there hasn't been any transmission to any of the players. You much like Let's hope that there's any transmission amongst the fans that are paying to be in attendance. I still don't think it's a great idea, but it was a pretty interesting game that happened on the field, even if we're not looking at what was happening in the stands.
0: And game one here goes to Atlanta as they take it five to one couple changes for the Dodgers before the series started as Alex Wood and Edwin Rios both rejoin the team we've been watching Rios it seems like he's ready to go he'll retake a spot on the roster and replaces Gavin Lux who we barely really even saw in the first couple rounds he is removed and Terrence Gore is removed as well to make space for Alex Wood Gore had not appeared at all so a couple changes there for the Dodgers the Braves completely unchanged Although their plan might change, as in only the second inning, Adam Duvall fouled a ball off himself and hurt his left oblique. Brian Snecker said after the game, I don't expect the outcome to be good. He popped it. Usually you see managers saying, we'll wait and see, we're waiting to hear back. Him just straight up saying that he doesn't expect it to be good. Probably not the greatest sign. Christian Pache took over for Duvall, but for someone that only has four plate appearances, a major league experience, that's a big blow for the Braves if they lose Duvall.
1: Brian Snitker has no time for your subtleties. He is going (laughs) to tell it like it is. Uh, We saw this when he was talking about Soroka. We saw it when he was talking about Freed near the end of the regular season. And we see it here again. Christian Pache going to have an interesting welcome to the major leagues because with only four Played appearances in the major leagues like you said uh it looks like he's gonna be slotted in as an everyday starter and especially in a championship series when you're working so hard to try to get back to the world series um that's an interesting move to make for sure For Adam Duvall, though, it's a really rough scenario because he had been one of their most reliable players in this postseason push, along with Travis Darno, as weird as that is to say. Two guys that you didn't really expect to be the front runners for players who were going to be key contributors. Obviously, we gush about Ronald Acuna Jr., Ozzy Albies, and Freddie Freeman, but those guys, you know, they've been postseason performers, and you see that pretty much from every team every year. You see those guys that step up out of nowhere when the the stars either aren't producing like they're supposed to or are a little bit behind schedule nonetheless though this game was fun to watch that's for sure because Walker Buehler and Max Fried pretty much went pitch for pitch Buehler puts up five innings of three hit ball only one run against five walks which is a little concerning to seven strikeouts with one home run allowed and that solo home run was allowed to Freddie Freeman the aforementioned and Max Fried, six innings four hits only one run against four himself Two walks to nine strikeouts, and he had one home run allowed as well. But that was to Kike Hernandez, not a guy that we expected to be hitting the ball out of the ballpark. His first start of the postseason after being relegated to the bench during both the wildcard series and the divisional series. Uh, And then from there, the bullpen's pretty different. Pretty, pretty different. Uh, Atlanta's was strong, and Los Angeles's wasn't.
0: And quite simply, that was the difference maker. Atlanta's three innings combined between the bullpen. Zero hits, zero runs, zero walks, and a strikeout. As perfect as you can get. The Dodgers, they combined for an extra inning. They go four innings of five hit, four run, two home run allowed ball. Where it started out fine. And Roberts pulls Bueller around the 100 pitch mark and he leaves two guys on base with nobody out in the sixth you worry maybe this could be where Atlanta tries to really blow this game open 1-1 at the time Gratterall comes in inherits that situation gets three outs in a row runs do not score stays 1-1 the bullpen would load the bases in the eighth but get out of it still no damage done But the ninth inning is where the damage came through. A four-run spot for the Braves. A Riley solo shot made it 2-1. That would be the eventual game winner. But then Azuna drove in a run for insurance. And Albies with a two-run shot made it 5-1 where this game would finish. The Dodgers, they take their first loss in nearly 20 days. As they had not lost since September 23rd. They start this series out down 0-1. I kind of expected this. I had the Braves winning game one. I had the Dodgers coming back to win the rest of the series. But certainly if they were able to get that start from Walker Bueller and get to Freed at least to keep it even, it went to the bullpens. I thought the Dodgers' depth would come away with one here. But just choke performance from the bullpen, which we've seen a couple times now from the Dodgers, maybe not as infallible as we might have thought.
1: Yeah, no, that's for sure. And you look at the opposite side, the Atlanta Braves pitching staff has been pretty much untouchable, and that's not me using superlative, that's the numbers talking. Their pitchers combined have an ERA of 0.93 in the postseason. That's the second lowest for any team through their first six games in the postseason ever. And that is really impressive. They've got Ian Anderson on the mound for them today. And it'll be interesting to see how the Dodgers try to attack him after not being able to muster much against the pitching staff yesterday.
0: And so a 1-0 lead for the Braves and a 2-0 lead now for the Rays as they knock off Houston 4-2. Morton and McCullers, both very strong. I mean, Morton goes five shutout innings and the Rays are able to keep the lead as the bullpen comes in. Hard to argue with five shutout innings. You could say he was the better pitcher. McCullers does allow all four runs that the Rays score here, but I think there's a a clear argument that he was stronger than Morton in this one. He does allow two home runs, and no way around that. Those two runs made the difference here. One a solo shot to Zanino and one a three-run shot to Margot. But all three runs on that Margot home run were unearned after Altuve spiked the ball that would have ended the inning, Misses a throw from shallow right field. McCullers, aside from that, seven strong, recording 20 whiffs, 20 swings and misses, the second highest total of his career. Strikes out 11 without walking a single batter. Of course, as I mentioned, the four runs come to score on the back of two home runs. But aside from those swings, McCullers was very much in control of this one.
1: And Jose Altuve, not really a guy that you expected to be the cause of those errors, because throughout the regular season, he had 20 at second base during the regular season. That was one of the best marks in the league, and he has five errors so far through the postseason, uh, including these two errors that he had made in this game. It's, it's a pretty routine play. I mean, maybe you could argue that Guriel could help him out a bit on the scoop because it appeared to hit the back of the glove and then bounced out. Nonetheless, though, it's a rough situation for McCullers to work through. He does work through it with only limited damage, but the bats are really looking for some answers because they're making solid contact. They're putting the ball in play. And they're just not getting results. I mean, we, we've we talked about the fact that so far through the postseason, I mean, we saw the Reds struggle to put runs up on the board. We've seen the Marlins struggle to put runs up on the board. Whoever's playing Atlanta's really struggling to put runs up on the board. But here in this Tampa Bay-Houston series, I feel like the damn it, it's got to burst at some point. But the question becomes if and when, right? Because you look at the number of runners that Houston has left on base, you look at their expected batting average in this one. I mean, Houston's mark of 357 to Tampa Bay's 167. I mean, you can tell that there's a disparity there. You can tell that Tampa Bay isn't making as much solid contact as Houston. They're not getting as many runners on base, but it's those clutch situations. I mean, you look at the ninth inning in this one, you have a scenario where Nick Anderson comes in arguably Tampa Bay's best reliever and in a bullpen that's stocked full of guys who can go that is impressive to say the least and through three pitches he has two runners on base all of a sudden he needs a mound visit eventually the bases are loaded for George Springer and he grounds into a double play only one run scores I mean just an absolute momentum killer especially with the base is loaded and none out. And then Alex Bregman smacks one into right center field. But, I mean, if you hit anything near Kevin Kiermaier, there's almost a guaranteed chance he's going to get to it and make the play. Just you, you figure that it's got to happen at some point for Houston. I think it happens today. But, man, a rough go of things so far in the series.
0: And a big difference between these two were the defenses. I mean, we talked about Altuve's error at length. Joey Wendell... Willie Adamez, phenomenal on that left side of the infield. Really makes a difference because, sure, Houston was hitting a lot of balls in play hard, but nothing was getting through that left side. They were a major factor here. Manuel Margot as well. We mentioned the three-run shot. He made a crazy catch. I was worried for his safety when he did that. It looked like he fell right on his head, but he kept the ball. He came up smiling. If you haven't seen that catch yet... Definitely check it out. We retweeted it on our Twitter. It's a phenomenal play. Go definitely give that a look at Trip Morning on Twitter. But like you said, we got to look to tonight. You said you think they break through. It's going to have to be done against Ryan Yarbrough. Jose Arquiti on the mound for Houston, who has looked good all season. That one goes later tonight at 8.40 p.m. Eastern. If you think the bats break through, are you saying Houston takes this one?
1: I do, and I think I'll make a bold prediction as to say I think they take two games here in a row because, I mean, I need to substantiate why I had uh, Tampa Bay taking this in six games. Houston's got to push it that far first before that can happen. In this game, it just feels like everything is coming together. It feels like things are slowly building up. And like I said, that dam has to burst at some point because you can only put the ball in play with hard contact so many times before it starts to touch green and you're rewarded for putting together good at-bats. I think that happens in this one. Uh, and Urquidy, I mean, he's had a, a problem with the long ball so far in the postseason. But I mean, other than uh, that game against the Oakland Athletics, I think he's been very strong. He's a guy that I think they can rely on in this one. Uh, but if he doesn't go as deep as they need him to and if he can limit run production, I think Houston's going to use that momentum and take this game from Tampa Bay.
0: I'll stick with Tampa Bay just because I feel like if you think their bats are due, how about Tampa Bay? They've been hitting the long ball, but we haven't seen as much really dropping in for them. I'll go Tampa Bay, but like a lot of people say, a series doesn't really start until a team loses at home. Tampa took both of their two home games at Petco. Certainly, the other series has started then because the road team Atlanta took Game 1. Back for Game 2, Ian Anderson, Clayton Kershaw. I think Kershaw really makes a statement this postseason, and it starts with a strong game two tonight. I go Dodgers over Braves.
1: Ten postseasons, no rings, is what is staring Clayton Kershaw in the face, and I think he's sick to death of people telling him that, not only on Twitter, but everywhere else in the media, because you know that they're talking about it. And I think the Los Angeles bats come around. I think they'll start to figure out a way to attack this Atlanta pitching staff who has been so, so good in the postseason so far.
0: Well, that's it for our show today. Like I said, check out that Margot catch on our Twitter, at TripMorning. You can find us as well on Instagram, at Morning Round Trip. For Drew Frank and Liam Carruthers, thank you for listening, and have a great day.